This is Focal Point for Thursday the 6th of May 2010, the digital copyright debate. Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the internet in your business and your life. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Pudney and Gihan Pereira for this week's edition. Hello Chris, how are you today? Well thanks Gihan, how are you? I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm looking forward to a bit of fisticuffs here, we're having a bit of a debate. Indeed. Well, we're actually not going to run it as a formal debate, but there is a debate about copyright in the digital era, and uh, most people will probably have heard about this. Uh, the whole debate that's going on about copyright of music and videos, and on one side there are the big publishers, the rec- uh, recording companies, the big movie publishers, and on the other side there are the consumers, and the debate is how the big publishers protect their copyright and how the consumers still get access to what they want to get in a, in a fair and reasonable way. And so we're going to talk about the the pros and the cons. Let's do it. So if I just outline the the position that the big media publishers take, and this is we're talking about the recording industry and the Motion Picture Association of America and and other related bodies, what they say is this is not about whether they're running their business well or in a smart way or it's not a moral argument about whether people have a right to music. It's purely a legal argument. It's simply saying that they provide products for sale and they have the right to say how those products are used and distributed and copied. And they have a right to protect themselves as a business. They have a right to protect their clients, the artists that they represent. And, of course, they have a right to protect their customers from people who are illegally making copies of it and therefore forcing the prices up. And so their argument would be that nobody's forced to buy their stuff. None of their clients are forced to sign up with them. So it's all about choice. It's not a case where they have a monopoly in any, in any way. So it's not unreasonable to require that the people who buy from them play by their rules. The, the big argument at the moment is that the current legislation that's in place isn't adequate in a practical and enforceable sense. So there is legislation that says you can't copy music illegally, but there's nothing to make it easy for that legislation to be enforced. So the argument is, what's the point of having legislation if you can't enforce it? So we need stronger and different legislation. So that's the, that's in one corner. They're the, the big media moguls and the big media companies. That's their argument. What about the other side, Chris? Yeah, so the other side of that is is the consumers of these the products that the big media are producing, and the argument against the measures taken by big media to protect their products and their business models is that some of the tech, technological measures that have been implemented have created products that just make the products unusable. They're they're essentially broken. They don't uh, behave in the way they're supposed to, or that you would expect when you reasonably buy one of these products. And the other thing is that. Uh, the legislation that big media have lobbied for has taken the rights of intellect of copyright holders too far in favour of big media um, to the detriment of society and to producers of original content and to consumers of it as well. Okay, so let's look at five points. We've come up with five points that make up this debate. We will start by talking about the big media's position, and since I've started with the introduction with that, Chris, I'll take on that role, and then you can talk about the counterpoint to that. So we're kind of going to do this as point and counterpoint. Uh, actually, why don't you start by describing each of the points, and then I'll res- describe the big media's response, and then you can come back with the, the consumer side. Then why don't we start with the first one, which is about the, the legislation, and in fact, some litigation that's happened in, in that respect as well. 
Yeah, so so, so big media's uh, got uh, various uh, uh, legal manoeuvres that it can resort to in order to uh, to act against piracy. And one of those uh, that's been introduced in several countries is sometimes called three strikes legislation, whereby uh, if uh, a copyright holder determines that uh, someone is downloading stuff illegally, then they contact the ISP and ask them to issue a warning. Uh, then they, uh, the next thing they do if they continue to do that is issue a stronger warning. And finally, uh, if the, uh, the downloading persists, then they require the ISP to cut off the Internet access of the copyright infringer. Right, and so the big media argument, it's, it sounds pretty draconian and it sounds pretty harsh, but their argument is that this is actually not a bad way of, of going. They're saying we're actually going to be fairly forgiving and tolerant of, if you like, first-time offenders and even second-time offenders because one of the arguments against this, uh, the, the whole anti-piracy thing, is that many users who are doing it either don't know that it's illegal because there are a number of people now who just assume that they can make it as many copies as they want, or they don't, they don't even realize that they're breaking the law because they're, uh, they're using things like um, file-sharing networks, peer-to-peer networks, where they're inadvertently making material available online illegally, or they might have a, uh, an unsecure Wi-Fi access point in their home and other people are using their Internet account to get access and, and illegally make files available for download. So the big media argument is, okay, well, fair enough. They're, we're not going to come down harsh on, harshly on those people. What we're going to do is give them two warnings. And so they're saying, okay, well, this, this is for people who actually don't realize that they're breaking the law. Uh, or who are being uh, somehow exploited by other people, well, we're going to give them a chance so they can secure their Wi-Fi access point, they can stop doing it if they didn't realize they were doing it, or they can be educated as to the fact that they were actually breaking the law without realizing it. So we'll give you two warnings before we come down harshly on you. Yeah, so the counterpoint to that is that uh, it overturns what uh, we've come to accept in most um, liberal societies, and that is the presumption of innocence. So here, what we have with three strikes, legislation is a kind of guilt upon accusation. So rights holders just have to accuse an internet user of copyright inf- uh, infringement for the user's network connection to be cut ultimately. So the problem there is that there's no judicial oversight whatsoever. The rights holder becomes the judge, the jury and the executioner. There's no intervention by a judge or any other legal mechanisms. It's it's simply the rights holder's job to uh, make an accusation and ultimately we have an internet user cut off. So the other problem with it also is that it implements a kind of collective punishment. So for instance, uh, if an individual in a household is uh, downloading and sharing files illegally and their internet connection is cut off as a consequence, then all users of that shared internet connection are punished. So if, for instance, one family member is engaged in illegal file sharing, then the whole family is punished ultimately if their connection is cut off as a result. And uh, that could be particularly bad if you haven't properly secured your Wi-Fi access point. So it may not just be a member of your family, it could be some random stranger who's exploiting um, an insecure access point. So the analogy we can draw is that, for example, if uh, my daughter goes and drives in our family car and breaks the law, uh, should my car be confiscated and our whole family punished as a consequence of uh, an individual's actions. 
Yeah, and I guess we're not going to debate this too much, but I guess the, the counterpoint to that would simply be, yes, if it's your daughter doing it and she's respo- and it's your car and it's licensed in your name and you're responsible for her driving it and she's in your household, then yes, it's reasonable to assume that you should take responsibility for her actions driving your car as well. And I guess that's what they're saying. They're saying the, the holder of the internet account at, at, in the house has responsibility for, for sh- uh, ensuring that it's used appropriately and used by family members appropriately. But coming back to your other point, Chris, I think you're right that the whole presumption of innocence thing is a big deal. It means that anybody, even if you never buy any music or you never download any films or you never do anything legally or illegally, you can still be accused by this and you can have your internet connection cut off without any sort of right to to defend yourself against it. Yeah, and, and you know... I've got experience of this in that when I ran um, offloadonline.com, um, which was a website where people could advertise recordings that they had for sale. So I received uh, a message from uh, the representatives of, um, of copyright for a particular artist saying that some of the stuff being advertised on the website were illegal copies. Um, and now I just took that stuff off off. Uh, um, offloadonline.com uh, I simply emailed the user and said look, this you've been accused of um, trying to sell illegal copies of a particular CD and you know, I'm going to side with the, the copyright holder and, and, and get rid of your listing and there was no recourse that that person had to saying, well hang on a moment these are legal copies, I just simply took them off because I didn't have the wherewithal to, to challenge that accusation Let's move on to the second one, Chris, which is the whole idea of digital rights management and whether that's helping or hindering real users or, and helping or stopping piracy. Yeah, sure. So DRM, digital rights management, is a technological measure that um, digital media is, some people would say, encumbered with to prevent it being copied and pirated. It, for instance, it may allow you to make a copy for a backup onto a CD so you can play it on a CD player in a car or a copy of it to a, a portable media device like an MP3 player. But that's really constrained. It, it controls the way that you make those copies in an attempt to prevent copies being made for the purposes of piracy. So that's what DRM is all about. Do you want to talk about that, Gihan, in a counterpoint? Well, the, the arguments often put that what you're doing is you're punishing legitimate users and customers and the pirates are able to get by it anyway. Um, that may, may or may not be true, that the pirates can still break the DRM. Big, big media would say, well, you know, I wonder whether the word punish is really appropriate here because you can say that criminals find a way around your security and leg- legitimate customers can't, but that's not really saying that you're punish- punishing your legitimate customers. That's like saying that a retail store is punishing a customer by forcing them to actually should pay money for their goods while somebody can break in or shoplift and get it for nothing. So you're not, you're not punishing your customers by protecting your products. The, all you're doing is you're trying to do your best to protect the products from theft. You know, it's not like customers don't know that their products are protected when they buy them. So they realize that they're buying something that they're meant to use that copy and it is protected from copying. So you're not punishing the customers. You're simply doing your best to actually protect them from rising prices because of theft by other people. Sure. And the counterpoint to that is that the the DRM, even though people see things that are clearly labeled as having some DRM um, on them, 
The problem is that DRM does break the products in, in many cases. So going way back to when CDs were first copy protected, I remember when I bought one, I took it home, I tried to play it on my PC CD, CD player and it just wouldn't play because of the copy protection mechanism uh, being incompatible with my PC CD-ROM drive. I contacted the artist management about this and what they had to do was they had to work around the, DR the DRM and send me a copy that they'd burned onto a recordable CD. So they had to go and essentially breach copyright in order to provide me with a copy of that album that, that I could play. And you might think, well, you know, that was early DRM, that was years ago, and uh, those sorts of things have been uh, worked around now. But it's not the case. The most recent release of um, the Blu-ray edition of the Avatar CD came with some DRM that made it unplayable on many Blu-ray players. So that required anyone who'd bought a copy of it, their Blu-ray player couldn't play it, they would have to go and download the latest firmware for this, for their Blu-ray player and install it, assuming that they actually could get their hands on an upgrade to the firmware and would know how to make that, that upgrade. The third point that I'd like to make is that um, in many cases, a DRM on digital media, so files that you have on your computer, often the way that it's implemented is by contacting some server on the web in order to check that you've got uh, a valid license for the digital media that you're playing. A few years ago, maybe not a few years ago, maybe last year or so, or so one of these servers was shut down forever. And that meant that all of the digital media whose DRM relied on contacting that server was now unplayable. So all those users who'd gone and bought uh, those particular digital media files that used that kind of DRM, they were punished in that after a year or so, they could no longer play those those um, albums and listen and and see those movies. So they'd been punished in the sense that they'd had a reasonable expectation that the goods that they bought they'd be able to play and listen to indefinitely and as a consequence of the DRM server being taken offline, that wasn't the case. So the argument is that the punishment is that uh, DRM puts these hurdles in front of customers when they buy products encumbered with DRM and so as a consequence it's little wonder that uh, the alternative of downloading an illegal copy that doesn't have any DRM that's not encumbered becomes a, a more attractive option than buying a, a legal copy that does have DRM. And that is, that's a fair enough argument, I think, that uh, I remember when that happened, that third instance that you're talking about, Chris, where the, the server was shut down, I think the big media companies had this very tortuous argument that the people, the customers who originally bought that didn't actually buy it. They kind of bought a right to play it for as long as the server was valid. And it was just, it was farcical. It was, or they, they didn't do themselves uh, any service by coming up with that argument they should have just said apologies we made a mistake but you know like customers would have a reasonable expectation that if they buy something and it is protected uh, then they can at least use that one version that they bought so you're absolutely right that if somebody puts on some sort of protection on their products then it's incumbent on them to make sure that the protection doesn't get in the ways of customers using their product legitimately. Yeah, which is why DRM has developed such a bad name because it breaks so many products in so many ways. All right, shall we move on to our next point, which is regarding the uh, inflated claims of damages that big media has made in order to bolster its arguments for stronger copyright protection? Well, I think that the counterpoint from the big media is that it would be that simply that the 
the claims haven't been inflated and it's a matter of opinion and the numbers that are bandied around about the benefits of people being able to illegally download and then buying the CDs later, they're all a matter of opinion and a matter of which re- report you, re- you read. And they would say, look, the only possible relevance of that, e- even making that point, is simply a question of whether there's any urgency for taking any action. And then it's just a question of magnitude. And it's not a question of is it a small problem or a big problem. It's a question of is it a huge problem or a very big problem. And even if it's a very big problem, it needs to be resolved. So it's not really a question of whether the exact number is right, but the problem is big enough that it does need to be addressed. Yeah, and uh, the counterpoint to that would be that we have had some pretty poor legislation introduced as a consequence of intellectual property rights holders lobbying their representatives in various parliaments, and it's the magnitude of these claims that they've used as leverage over their legislators to argue for things like um, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and the proposed act that's um, being drafted at the moment and the, and the three strikes legislation that we talked about before. So the magnitude of these claims is important because it's all part of the rhetoric used to argue for increased intellectual property rights. I don't think that we necessarily have a right or wrong answer to this. I, I tend to agree with Chris, I think that the claims made by big media are generally along the lines of, well, this many copies have been downloaded illegally. If you take the retail value of those copies and add them all up, that's how much money we're losing. I mean, on the surface, it sounds fine, but as soon as you dig even slightly beneath the surface, you realize that it's just unreasonable to make that sort of claim because it's uh, that's assuming that everybody who downloaded a copy would have otherwise gone out and bought one retail, which is ridiculous. Yeah, as well as the, the studies that indicate that many of the people who do download, who do download copies illegally, also subsequently go and buy copies as well. So they might be kind of trying before they're buying, even though it's a, a pirated copy that they listen to before they go and buy a particular album. They ultimately do buy an album. Yep, and that's something that we have talked about in a in a episode maybe a year ago, 18 months ago, about the whole idea of free and freemium and different free models that are available now that the Internet makes easy because it is digital and the idea that maybe big business should be looking at, big media should be looking at those sort of business models rather than trying to stop illegal downloads altogether. But I guess their their argument is that's a business decision, not a legal decision, and we're going to argue about this from a legal viewpoint first. Sure. So the next point we're going to cover is with regard to how uh, the extension of um, intellectual property rights has reversed the original intent of intellectual property, which was to uh, stimulate and spur innovation. So the idea is that you are granted a temporary um, monopoly over a particular work such that you get a reward, that monopoly, uh, and that reward is enough to spur innovation and creation of content and products. But over time, the intellectual property rights holders have lobbied for extensions of the period of monopoly and also legislation to, to further support that, um, so much so that we now find ourselves faced with a situation that intellectual property rights law is uh, having a chilling effect on the creation of content and on innovation. 
Yeah, I don't know much about this area, so I don't know what sort of arguments are being put forward by the big media. If I was to take their viewpoint, their, their stance, it might be simply that, I guess in the olden days, it wasn't such a, it wasn't such a big deal. You could have things protected for 28 years, and the flow of information, the speed of information was so slow that it didn't require anything longer than that. Maybe now, because things travel around the world literally at the speed of light over the internet, you're exposed to much more possible exploitation, therefore you want to hold on to your rights for longer. Yeah, I think that's the argument that's been made because, you know, it's now so easy to to, to pirate digital media that the extent the uh, copyright period needs to be to last longer as compensation for that. But nonetheless, some independent studies of what is an optimal period of copyrights to, to last for has been around the original period, which was initially no more than 28 years. I think it was 14 years plus another 14 years after the death of the artist. Uh, that, that was the original 300 years ago version of um, intellectual property. And, uh, and ec- economists have uh, examined sort of the pros and cons of extending the period and they've come up with about 14 to 28 years as being about right. But we have situations such as in the United States where it can be up to 90 years after the death of the creator of that content. And so it's been argued that, that this period is just too long. It locks up content away from the public domain for far too long and so... Uh, it just can't be used without paying a cost to uh, the, the holder of the copyright. Um, and in addition, uh, many copyrights, it's difficult, it, many works, it's difficult to trace the original owner. And so the cost of finding out the original owner and the consequences of breaching copyright have so much cost associated with them that uh, artists just don't bother. They, they, they don't use these works because of the cost involved in finding out who owns the copyright or if there is a copyright indeed. And the punishment, if they do breach copyright, uh, the costs are so high that it has a chilling effect. They don't bother trying to reuse or, or mash up this content, and, uh, and so it has a chilling effect on creativity. And I agree with you that now so much material is available where the, the copyright holder is not always clear. I guess in the past, if the, the information that was protected by copyright was something like a movie or a book or a single CD or, you know, in the old days, LPs, where the copyright was pretty clearly stated. But now I've gone to websites where I want to get um, images that I want to reuse. And if it's not very, if it's not clear where the images come from, then I simply don't use them. If there's no copyright stated, then I simply assume that I don't have the right to use it rather than the case that I might even have permission to use it. It's just not clear whether it's there or not. Yeah, and uh, another lobby group was sort of opposed to the actions of, uh, of big media. They're the CCIA, I can't remember what that acronym stands for, um, but one of their backers is Google, who obviously who operates sites like YouTube. They've argued that fair use provisions uh, generate $4.7 trillion in revenue for the U.S. economy. So that might be another one of these uh, inflated claims. But nonetheless, they claim that it's a huge sector of the economy that relies on fair use provisions. And so if we extend further copyright provisions, then we're putting at, they're putting at risk a huge sector of the economy uh, by locking up content for longer and making it more difficult to reuse and mash it up in various ways. Right, right. So, uh, our final and concluding point was that all of these measures have had little to no effect on piracy. Digital piracy continues unabated. And it's time to perhaps accept that it's an insurmountable problem 
and wind back some of the most egregious anti-piracy measures, such as DRM and some of the uh, copyright periods that we have, and instead start looking at alternative business models as a way of monetizing digital media, things like a blank media tax or an internet version of the blank media tax, or the kinds of freemium models that we talked about in previous podcasts. The the counter-argument to that made by the big media companies, which is what they're still sticking by, is that you say it's insurmountable, we say it's not. That we'll protect ourselves, we'll protect our artists, we'll protect our customers, and just because you say it's insurmountable, it's only an opinion. And we will have legislative measures and technical measures that will make that will ensure that it's not insurmountable. It's a problem that can be resolved. Yeah, I, I think that that's that, that that's what they're going to do, and what they're obviously what they're trying with things like the ACTA um, legislation being drafted. And I think that they're on the edge of a precipice. I think they're kind of gone as far as they can go, and. And it's still not working. I don't think that any technological measure is going to work for them. If you can create a better version of DRM, then you can create a better way of um, of protecting yourself from detection as a pirate. So the technological measures aren't going to work. The legislation is eventually going to bump up against the kinds of people like Google, who are also big lobbyists and also have interests that they want to protect. And so they can only go so far as so far in terms of legislation. Um, at which point there's not much squeeze room left for big media and they either have to change the way they do business or disappear. So, so I agree with you, Chris. I, I, in my opinion, the big media companies, you know, they have a valid legal point, but uh, from a business viewpoint, I think they're acting in a very dumb way. I think they're acting in a very um, old-fashioned way. They're assuming that they can protect their their rights in the same way that they could protect them before the digital age and I just don't think that's the case and I hope that some young upstart comes along and shows them a new business model and puts them out of business really Uh, or they change their attitude and they embrace the new business models but we'll see whether that happens it depends maybe on the the leadership and the the power that and the effect that they have with their lobbying because if they have some small successes chances are they'll persist with it and they're probably better off for their own sake if they fail quickly and realise that they have to change Yeah, but I wonder Gihan, do you think there is a place for big media in in the Web 2.0 era when artists can directly um, uh, sell their products to their audience? They don't need the kinds of um, distribution channels that that existed before big media. They can now put up an album on a website and sell direct to the public. And you sent me a really good um, webcast uh, in the run-up to this this talk today, in which uh, the the the, um, the presenter pointed to various studies that showed a very very tiny proportion of performing artists actually make money out of the big media um, model. It's only a very small proportion that do. Most of them make money from live performances, from things that have got a, an inherent scarcity associated with them. So official merchandise, um, live performances, but money made from recordings and that sort of thing, all of that, little of that actually even covers the cost of producing that recording. And so from an artist's point of view, they're just better off cutting out the middlemen and selling their, giving their, giving their recordings away for free was the 
was the conclusion that this particular presenter came to, using that as a way of building publicity and then making money off things that are inherently scarce, such as official merchandise, such as live performances. Those sorts of things can't be pirated. You have to buy a ticket to go to a con- to go to a concert. That's the only way that it can be that you can experience it as a fan. Um, yeah, I agree with you, Chris, uh, and we'll put a link to that that webcast from the Oxford Internet Institute and in the um, notes for this podcast episode. I agree with you. I, I don't think that big the big media companies can succeed in the, the way they are at the, at the moment. So, however, that's what I meant by new business models. Perhaps they adapt, and they there are now companies that organize concerts for artists, and maybe that's a new media model, and that's a new income model that's based around uh, music and yeah, maybe even movies in the future. So that's what I meant by a new business model. Perhaps the big media companies who do have clout, they have connections, they have the infrastructure, would have to make changes and fairly radical changes in order to become relevant again. So Gihan, watch this space as uh, this sort of uh, these changes take place. We'll be sure to keep our audience up to date. We will. Thanks, Chris. Thanks very much for your time. Speak to you in a couple of weeks' time, Gihan. Okay. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Focal Point Podcast. You can find us on the web at www.gihanperera.com forward slash podcast. That's G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A dot com. Subscribe to the podcast, listen to all our past issues, or leave us your comments and questions. We look forward to having you back next time.